Well, good morning, everybody, and a special welcome if you're joining us for the first time. And of course, a special welcome to my fellow Michigan fans. We come here in our time of despair to seek the comfort of the Lord. So that's just how that goes. Some, hey, uh, you win some, you lose some. We seem to lose a lot of that one, but I'm moving on now. So we're in week two of a series that we've called The One Thing that changes everything. And if you weren't with us last week, I just want to take a moment and catch you up. Last week, uh, we began with something I've thought for a long time and only recently put into words. It goes like this. Um, I don't know why everyone wouldn't want Christianity to be true. I don't know why everyone wouldn't want Christianity to be true. And just a couple disclaimers, not necessarily the version you grew up with, not necessarily the version that you see when you watch late night Christian cable television, and not the version that you see when you watch the news and how Christians are often portrayed in the media, but, but the original version, the version that Jesus had in mind in the beginning. And here's why. I mean, when you track Jesus through the accounts of his life, when you hear him teach, when you see how he treats people, it's like, I don't know why anybody wouldn't want that to be true. Jesus came to bring freedom and forgiveness, and hope, and purpose, and clarity to this life. I mean, his version, what he intended for us, really is pretty incredible and really is pretty irresistible. So much so that in the first century, all sorts of people who were attracted to Jesus. They resonated with his message. In fact, people who were nothing like Jesus were attracted to Jesus. They liked Jesus and Jesus liked them. And if you said to me, you know, as you've read and studied, is there, is there sort of a, a, a word that encapsulates what was so attractive about Jesus? I'd say absolutely, that word is grace. And for three weeks, we're talking about grace and we're defining it this way. Grace is undeserved Unearnable favor. Undeserved, unearnable favor. It's, it's favor in spite of whatever you've done. Grace is what you crave when you hurt someone you love. And the relationship is broken and you can't take back what you said and you can't take back what you did. But in your heart of hearts, your desire is, man, couldn't we just come together? Not that you'd forget what happened, but is there a way to restore relationship even, even in spite of the brokenness? And, and the answer to that through the lens of grace is yes. And that's why around here, we're convinced that grace really is the one thing that can change everything, not just between people and God, but between people and people, between husbands and wives, between parents and kids, between friends that get sideways for all sorts of different reasons. Now, just a, a one more thing to note before we dive into the text, like grace, it, it, it's one of those things that it's just a concept until it's experienced. And so for us to really understand grace, we have to experience it in the context of a relationship. And that's why God showed up as one of us in the person of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. He came to show us what grace looked like in flesh and blood. You could say as Jesus interacted with people, the grace of God was on full display. And what people saw was so beautiful and it was so unexpected. It, it wasn't the way religion had ever worked before. It wasn't the way a religious prophet had ever worked before. And so consequently, even though it was beautiful, it was unsettling and, and it left people stunned and even a bit disturbed. 
Just by way of example, um, one day Jesus and his disciples are traveling from up north around the Sea of Galilee to the capital city, to Jerusalem. And in the first century, what you would do as you hiked down, you would literally hike down the banks of the Jordan River, and then you'd reach a town called Jericho, and then at Jericho, you'd turn up into the mountains, and you'd climb all the way to Jerusalem. And so as the story unfolds, Jesus is near the peak of his popularity. Everywhere he goes, people line the streets to see him, to catch a glimpse of him, to hear him teach, maybe to see him heal. And so I imagine as, as Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem, word had spread that Jesus was going to be there, and it looked like Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade without the Snoopy balloons. You know what I'm saying? Like people were excited. The kids were dressed up. They had made signs that said, welcome Jesus. Everybody was there and everybody wanted to see Jesus, including a man by the name of Zacchaeus. And if you're familiar with the text, you know he is the most famous we person in all of history, right? There was even a song about him. I will not sing the song because it'll get inside your head and you'll hate me later. But there's a song, Zacchaeus Vertically challenged, he gets to the parade too. He wants to see Jesus too, and so he climbs a tree. It's called the sycamore fig tree. My wife and I were in Israel in July, and we took a picture of the actual tree. Here it is. This is what they tell you. So lots of people take a picture of this, and apparently they say it's a very old tree, which would make sense if it is the tree. I'm not convinced it's the tree, but if you call it the tree, then people will take pictures with it, and they will buy t-shirts that say, I saw the tree. So that's what they do when you're in Israel. But anyway, Zacchaeus climbs up a tree so that he can see Jesus. But one more piece of information before I show you what happens. You need to know that everyone in the town of Jericho hated Zacchaeus because he was a tax collector. He was a social outcast. He was a religious outcast. Nobody liked Zacchaeus. He had gone to the Roman Empire, the global military superpower in the day, and said, I want to collect taxes for my city. And they said, okay, here's how much we need you to collect. And you can collect however much you want for yourself and you get to keep the rest. So Zacchaeus had made his living ripping off his friends. And so as they watch him climb the tree that day, you only can imagine what they were thinking. They hated Zacchaeus. So, Zacchaeus, so Jesus and the disciples enter into town and they reach the tree and Jesus stops and he looks up and he sees Zacchaeus and he says something. Zacchaeus, come down immediately. And I love the way that's translated because it really sounds kind of stern when you just read this far. Come down immediately. And I imagine the townspeople are like, oh, it's on Zacchaeus, right? You are about to get what's coming to you. Finally, someone isn't intimidated by you. Finally, someone's going to stand up to you. And they kind of gather around the tree in sort of an arena of sorts. And they wonder, what is Jesus going to do to Zacchaeus? And as we continue... Jesus says to Zacchaeus, I must stay at your house today. So we came down at once and, and welcomed him gladly. And if we're reading this apart from the culture, we're like, oh, that's nice. And you keep reading. But you have to understand, the crowd would have been so confused. Like, why would you show him grace? Like, he is the last person in town who deserves to have lunch with you, Jesus. There's no way. It's like, and I imagine Jesus' disciples are once again confused. They're like, why is it that we always have to have lunch with tax collectors and sinners? Like, what is the deal? There's so many other great people in the town. And so the people, they begin to grumble. Here's what Luke tells us in his account. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. And they just can't believe what they're witnessing. 
Like, right, they got the kids up early, they got them dressed, they made the signs, and remember, they're all there because it's the first century, and this is the most exciting thing that's happened to their town in a really, really long time. And instead of being impressed by Jesus, which is what they expected, they walked away offended by Jesus. I mean, a traitor who's ripped us off, he's the one who gets to have a meal with Jesus. This is so backwards. This is so unexpected. This is so unbelievable. Like everything about this is wrong. And it was unsettling to Jesus' original audience. And if we're honest, if we place ourselves in the story, it would be, it would be unsettling to us today. And here's why. We don't necessarily understand the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, that, that, that place or that place in life where everything is just as God wants it to be. We don't understand God's economy. We don't understand how God sees the world. And so Jesus comes to show us the heart of God the Father, and it's almost like we start to see it and we think, no, no, that, just, that doesn't make sense to us, which is why Jesus engages us over and over and over again and tries to point us to a better way over and over again, Jesus would try to explain to people who would gather the upside down nature of the kingdom of God, how God works. He tried to explain the rules of God's kingdom, a kingdom rooted in grace. In fact, when you read those accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, there's a series of stories Jesus tells. They're called parables. Most of the parables begin with the same language. It goes like this, you know, for the kingdom of God is like or for the kingdom of heaven is like. And Jesus is trying to say, listen, if you want to live your life under the rule and reign of God right here and right now, you're going to have to renegotiate everything. It's better. It's counterintuitive, but it's better. And if you want to do it, let me show you how to do that. And so with the rest of our time today, I want to walk you through one of these parables that Jesus tries to explain to us how the kingdom of God works through the lens of grace. So Jesus is up north in the Galilee. There's another crowd gathered, and he tells them this story. He says like this, for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard, and they would have totally been following. Because in the Galilee, even to this day, there are vineyards where they make wine. Back in the first century, the people that owned the land would go out and hire day laborers each day to work in their fields. And he agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. So he goes out early in the morning. So let's just imagine, you know, they worked a 12-hour day, so say 6 a.m. And they would have gone to the center of town where the workers, people needing day labor would gather. And he agrees to pay them a denarius. And that's really not any big deal either. That was a common day wage in the first century. So, so far, so good. Jesus continues. Uh, about 9 in the morning, so three hours into the 12-hour day, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. And he told them, you also go and work in my vineyard. And I will pay you, and, and it's changed a little bit here, I'll pay you whatever is fair. And so they went. So many of you have heard this parable. You know where it goes. But, but if you haven't heard it, you just need to know that it goes somewhere unexpected. And in fact, one of the reasons I believe that these are the actual words of Jesus is that when you discover what Jesus is about to say, you realize that this was not a great way to build a following, it's like, Jesus, this is not the way to build a movement. If he, had he hired a consultant, he'd be like, you're just going to confuse people. This is the op opposite of everything everybody expected. And Jesus would respond, but this is the way you introduce the upside-down kingdom of God. So Jesus continues. And he went out again, about noon. 
And about three in the afternoon, so you got four groups, right? And he did the same thing. So he invites people to come work in his vineyard throughout the day. Next slide. About five in the afternoon, and this is common in Jesus' parables, he pushes it to an extreme. He wants, you to, he wants you to understand like the whole purpose of this story is to make a point and I'm not going to be subtle because I want you to be shocked. So he says, five in the afternoon, this is like one hour before the day is done, he went out and found still others standing around and he asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Which I think is a great question. And I know what they would say. Well, one of them would say, you know, um, I have these children and they're hungry and my wife sent me here so I could make some money to buy some food to take home to my children. But nobody hired me, which means I don't have any money, which means I don't have any food, which means not going home. Not going to happen. So he goes on. He says, but no one has hired us, they answered. And he said to them, you also go work in my vineyard. You also go work in my vineyard. And it's, it, again, it's comical because you think, okay, they're at the center of town. They, they're hired at five. The workday is done at six. They have to walk to the vineyard. They have to, you know, whatever sort of equipment they would need. These guys are working like half an hour at the best. And, and so as I imagine it, Jesus sort of lets this moment settle in and the crowd is listening is thinking, well, this is going to be this is going to be kind of weird because you got some people that have worked all day and you got some people that have just worked like 35 minutes. And so when it comes time to pay everybody, how is that all going to work out? Which is Jesus' point. Here's what he says next. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, so that's like his lead guy, call the workers and pay them their wages. So far, so good. Beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. So I want you to start by paying the guys who got there at like 537 and a half. Okay, like that's who's going to be first. And, and then as we continue reading, here comes the twist. Here's the value system Jesus is trying to introduce into the world. Here's Jesus' way of saying, this is what God is like. And if you don't know where the parable is going, you should know that it's about to go in two ways. Uh, this parable becomes very disturbing to some people and it becomes very helpful to other people. And to be honest, this parable uh, becomes very disturbing for people like me. Um, and I actually suspect Jesus told this parable for the benefit of people like me. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit about me. Uh, compliant people, are you in the house? Right? Rule followers, firstborn people, right? And maybe we tend to be a little self-righteous. I'm not saying that. Just a little bit, right? And if you're sitting next to one, don't nudge them because it's really awkward when you do that, right? But this is how you know if that's you. Uh, growing up, if you were the type of person who was always trying to do the right thing, right? And now you're, you're not perfect and everybody knew it, especially your mama. But generally speaking, trajectory of your life, you try to do the right thing. Uh, if you grew up in church, we were the ones who read our Bible every day and we prayed and we didn't drink or chew or snort or whatever you're supposed to do. We, and we just, we did all the good things and we didn't do the bad things. I don't know why I said that. That's okay. You know, but y'all know what I'm talking about. Yeah. And, and so, and then we never went out with people who did those bad things because that's what bad people did. And we thought of ourselves as kind of good people, you know, not perfect, but good. Okay. So here's what Jesus says next. He says, the workers who were hired about five in the afternoon, so the 35 minute guys, came and each received a denarius. And again, apart from the culture, you're like, oh, isn't that nice, a denarius? I'm sure they were really thankful. Remember what a denarius was? It's like what you're supposed to get for a whole day's work. And so they are thrilled. But you know who's even more thrilled than they are? Okay, remember, they're all lined up backwards. Five o'clock guy gets a denarius. 
three o'clock guy is getting excited, right? Noon guy is like beside himself. 6 a.m. guy is like, I'm buying a boat, right? Because, man, if this, this is really looking good for me right now, um, we're getting more, apparently, which we weren't expecting, but now we're getting more. So, Jesus says, when those who came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. Of course they did, so would I. But each one of them also received a denarius. And when they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. And so would I, and so would you, right? I would grumble just like the religious leaders we talked about last week who were outside of Matthew's house when Jesus and the disciples are having dinner with yet another tax collector. I would grumble just like the people in Jericho who lined up early for the parade and then watched the most unworthy guy in town get a meal with Jesus. And so the laborers in this parable grumble and they go after the man who had hired them. Those who were hired last, and uh, those who were hired last worked only one hour, they said. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. By the way, we were there early. We were there first. We worked hard. We worked efficiently. We gave way more effort. You have made them equal to us, and they are not equal to us. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius, take your pay and go. And they go, okay, we want to go time out. Yes, it's true that we agreed to work for a denarius, but how in the world can you say this is fair? I mean, what sort of standards are you using to define fair? And then Jesus gives us a really, really big clue about the way of life that he has invited his followers to walk. Here's what he says next. This is, and again, this is the landowner who in the story is the God figure. I want the vineyard owner says, I want. And by implication, then, it's, it's not what you want. It's what, it's what I want. He says, I want to give the one who was hired last a gift. They certainly didn't earn it. I want to give the one who was hired last the same amount I gave you. And that's, that's my business. And we want to object. And we, because we want to say, okay, well, we earned our denarius. And it's not fair. They didn't earn their denarius. We worked for it. He says, I want to give the ones who were hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Years ago, I had a pastor friend talk about this, and he goes, it's like, it's like the landowner says, you know what? I, I could have a parade and just throw money to everybody. It's my money. I can do what I want, right? And we look at that and go, but, that's, but that just isn't fair. And in my mind, at this point, the crowd goes silent, and this is the convicting part, and this is the moment everyone figures out who they are in the parable in this moment, Jesus illuminates the absurdity of our resistance to grace. Because in this moment, Jesus points a spotlight on our hypocrisy when it comes to grace. Here's what he says. Or are you envious because I'm generous? Are you envious because I'm generous? And we go, whoa, 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 whoa. This isn't about me being envious. This is about what's fair. I mean, who would be envious about generosity, right? I mean, that's so childish. That's so immature. I'm not resentful of your generosity. I'm just saying, because I worked harder, awkward, like dot, 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 right? And in this moment, Jesus sort of outs us all because we see the world the way the 12-hour workers see the world. And throughout his teaching, Jesus invites his followers to see the world differently through the lens of grace. 
He invites people to see other people differently, and he invites us to see our Heavenly Father differently because the kingdom of God is characterized by disturbing generosity and disturbing grace. And in this parable, Jesus is basically trying to say, can you handle it? Can you handle it enough to participate in it? Can you, can you, can you step into a system where the undeserving get what they don't deserve? Practically, would you be willing to extend to others what they don't deserve because your heavenly father has extended to you something that you don't deserve? He says, that's what it means to live in God's kingdom. And I know, and I know it, it upends all your expectations, and that's a good thing because the way that the world is working is not working, and that's why I've come to show you a better way. And, I, and just imagine this with me. Um, the people that are gathered, like, there's prodigal sons and daughters there that have run from God. They've done all the things you're not supposed to do. They've been judged by the religious people. Here's another religious guy, and, and he's like, he's offering scandalous grace. Like, what do you mean that, that God would want someone like me? So the prodigal sons and daughters are overjoyed, and so are the prodigal husbands who like blew up their marriages and families and thought, God will never again hear my prayers. And Jesus comes, and all of a sudden, there's hope again. So are the prodigal wives who ditched their responsibilities and ran off and did something that crashed their lives. So the prodigals loved this, but, but what about people like me? What about the compliant firstborn people? What do, what do we say? And so Jesus tells a story challenging people like me. He basically says, in effect, when you begin to understand the values of the kingdom of God, when, when you understand the new sort of thing that I've come to bring to the world, when, when you step into it and you fully embrace it, it's going to feel really weird to you. In fact, it's going to feel like this. So the last will be first. Oh, let's go back on one slide. That's okay. So the last will be first, and the first will be last. So the last will be first, and the first will be last. And that will feel unfair to you because of how you were raised to measure fair. And by the way, over Turkey, this past week, I thought, how do we measure fair? This is just my theory. You can disagree with me. I think we compare to determine what's fair. I like that because it's Dr. Zeus sounding, you know what I'm saying? We compare, to so we look at everybody else, and then we try to determine what's fair. But, but this is good news, and if you're a note taker, grace doesn't compare. Grace doesn't compare because grace in Jesus is always married to truth. Remember we talked about, uh, last week we talked about how Jesus came from the Father full of grace and truth. Not the balance of grace and truth, not 50-50 grace and truth, all grace, all truth, all the time. And so the grace of Jesus is always married to the truth of Jesus. And the truth is that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And all of us are in need of the Savior. Even the really good people are in need of a Savior. The problem is the really good people don't always remember they need a Savior. And that's why the message that Jesus brought was so amazing and so un. Believable. That's why I, I can't imagine why everyone wouldn't want Christianity to be true. I mean, even if, even if you, they struggle to believe that it's true, how well they wouldn't want it to be true. Because the system Jesus leaves us with is so much better than fair. In fact, our big idea for today says it this way. Grace isn't fair, it's better than fair. 
Grace isn't fair. It's better than fair because in the kingdom of God, everybody is invited. Everybody is invited. The people that show up at 6, the people that show up at 9, the people that show up at noon and at 3, even the people who show up at 5. Everyone's invited. The people with baggage are invited. The people with regret are invited. The arrogant people who judge the people who have baggage and regret are invited. Everybody's invited to the kingdom of God and everybody enters through the same door. Anybody who's, who's there is there because of Jesus, not because we were good enough. Remember, Jesus is he, he, grace and truth, so he never failed to call out sin when he saw it. And then he went on to die for it, to pay the price and to offer us a chance to be restored to God. Everybody comes in through the same door, the same way, by placing their faith in Jesus as their Savior, trusting that what he did on our behalf can make us right with God, despite how unright we may have been, and regardless of how unsettling that may sound. So as we close today, I want to do something a little bit different. Um, I want to give you a chance to pray a prayer with me. And, and it, um, don't worry, it doesn't get weird, I promise. Um, not a magic prayer. I wrote it, so not a magic prayer. There you go. Um, just a really simple prayer. It encapsulates what we've been talking about, but it's, it's, the, it's a prayer that just acknowledges that we can't get there on our own and that God made a way where there was no way and that we place our faith in Jesus as our Savior and we move from an insecure position wondering if we've done enough good to be right with God to a position of security because it has nothing to do with our goodness. It has everything to do with the goodness of our God. And, and so um, in just a moment, uh, we'll put the words up on the screen. I'll invite you to pray this with me. And um, two groups of you, if, if, G, if, if you're in and you've been in decades, whatever, pray this with me because it's a great just affirmation of, of what we believe. And for you, um, there may be a few of you here, though, who have never prayed this prayer, or you prayed the prayer as a kid, and you really wandered, and you haven't been in church for like 25 years, and you're here this morning, and you're like, whoa, this whole thing was for me. And if that's you, yes, it was. We knew you were coming. Just kidding. We didn't know. Um, but yeah, just a chance for us to say to God, we accept the gift of Jesus. We accept your grace. And we know that that means we can know where we stand with you. So again, just join me in this prayer, whether you've been a Christian for decades or maybe for you even this morning is the first time where, where you see the beauty of what Jesus came to do, the freedom and the clarity that he offers that can change everything. So uh, put it up on the screen and we'll pray this together. Would you join me? Heavenly Father, I fall short every day. I need what I don't deserve to be forgiven and restored to you. I believe Jesus' death accomplished both. So today, I place my faith in him as Savior. I trust what he did on my behalf. I confess it's not my goodness that restores my relationship to you. Rather, it's the work of Jesus alone that brings forgiveness. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we will never get over grace that meets us exactly where we are in the middle of our mess and whispers to us, you are accepted. 
we're so thankful that we get to carry this message with our lives. We get to carry this message in this community. We get to carry this message to our city and to the world. That in Jesus, there is freedom. Freedom from fear and a hope of eternity with you. And so we just say thank you for loving unlovable people. Not because we are good, but because you are good. We are gathered because 2,000 years ago, your light touched down on our planet and changed everything. And so we bless you. We thank you. We love you. We want to love you more. In the matchless name of your son, our savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Everyone said, amen. Grace and peace, friends. We'll see you next week for part three of the one thing that changes everything.